welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. I am excited to launch a new series here on the podcast called Ask Dr. G. We are consistently in receipt of so many interesting questions from our Commune community regarding health. And I simply cannot imagine anyone better to answer these questions than my dear friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. So Sarah has been kind enough to lend her considerable experience and knowledge here on the show to addressing these inquiries. And Sarah is a Harvard-educated, board-certified gynecologist, physician, and scientist. She received the moniker of Dr. G from the Philadelphia 76ers, who she health coaches, and she's led numerous commune courses, including ones on perimenopause and menopause, and happily, we seem successful in luring her up to commune Topanga on a fairly regular basis. So the good news here is you can be part of the conversation and submit your questions at onecommune.com slash askdrg. So that's onecommune.com slash A-S-K-D-R-G, askdrg. And to learn even more, you can watch her free commune masterclass, Women, Food, and Hormones, at onecommune.com slash menopause. Additionally, if you're interested in courses on functional medicine, gut health, meditation, Ayurveda, nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire treasure trove of courses, which includes more than 130 courses now on spiritual and physiological health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. It makes a huge difference, and I'd really appreciate it. Okay, in this inaugural episode of Ask Dr. G, we discuss menarche, the age when puberty starts in girls, and why it's beginning earlier and earlier. Okay, so here's my conversation with Dr. G. Dr. Sarah Godfrey, what a treat to be with you here in a little cabin on top of a hill in Topanga. What a treat to be with you, Jeff. So we have started to amass questions that continually come up within our community. And uh, you've been kind enough to try to demystify some of these questions that seem to be confounding to so many people. So this is one uh, about menarche. Uh, this is a word that you taught me how to pronounce. So I'm going to read just a, a little bit of background data here and present a conundrum, and perhaps you can uh, untangle it. Okay. So the Germans did a study, of course they did, uh, in 1860. And at that juncture, the average age of the onset of puberty in girls was 16.6 years. So 1860, it was 16.6. In 1920, that had gone down two years to 14.6. By 1950, 13.1. By 1980, 12.5. And in 2010, at least in the sources that I've read, it dropped to 
five years. So that from 1860, at which time the onset of puberty, menarche, was 16.6, to 2010, and the data point I had, it had dropped to 10.5. That's 6.1 year decline. Why are girls getting their periods over six years earlier than they did in 1860, 163 years ago? There's a confluence of reasons, Jeff. In my mind, the most important is the changes to our food supply, the overnutrition, the way that we eat compared to 1860, the epidemic that we have now of childhood obesity. All of these conspire to create this, I almost think of it as a the wrong kind of party in the female body where you've got a lot of insulin, more insulin than your body can manage. And this has a lot of downstream effects, one of which is the maturation of the female sex hormone cycle, and it leads to an earlier onset of menarche. So what you've described since 1860 is something that fits with my experience. So in my previous career, I was an obstetrician gynecologist. I saw a lot of these young girls, young women who were getting their periods much earlier. And, you know, bodies have really changed since 1860. I think about my great grandmother mm. who was really lean and she ate food that she cooked. She had a garden. She um, ate no processed foods. She was born in 1900. So not quite that 1860 that you referenced. When she ate an apple, it was a cute little apple that was a little sour. It wasn't like these big sugar bombs that we now get at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. So our food has really changed. It's led to this oversupply of nutrients. We now know that you know 20% of our children in the United States are obese. And that's tragic. Mm. So it's, it's not just that it leads to menarche earlier, but it's got a host of other symptoms along with it, like high blood pressure, diabetes, early cardiovascular disease, even as early as childhood. So that's what I see. I mean, there's other reasons too, such as toxins, endocrine disruptors. Although I would say the literature on endocrine disruptors is not as clear as you might hope. Hmm. Yeah. But lack of proof is not proof against. And I also think we've got to use the precautionary principle when it comes to toxins and endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, maybe we can address phthalates and parabens and um, these things that we lather on top of ourselves to make ourselves more attractive, supposedly, um, and some of their negative downstream impacts. But let's stick for a moment with metabolic dysfunction because it's so prevalent and, and you're such an expert in this, uh, in this field. So let's play this out a tiny bit. In 1860, I'm imagining that there was less prevalence of sugars and starches in our diet. Would you say that's a fair assumption? I think that's right. I mean, certainly processed food has brought refined carbohydrates to the fold. So yes, although I would say overall, there was a more balanced diet. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there weren't the extremes that we have now where we villainize carbohydrates. So I think the the right answer is probably somewhere in the middle, but certainly there were more refined carbs then. Yeah. Because the layman's theory that I'm trying to pull out here, and it's one that I've heard um, supported by other doctors as a metabolic expert named Ben Bickman, for example, who's talked about this, where the diet, particularly excess glucose in the diet, is triggering more insulin to the degree that we're developing, obviously, type 2 diabetes, but also hyperinsulinemia. And that then has an impact on the development of excess adiposity, particularly visceral fat. And we know that leptin is a particular hormone that is produced in adipose tissue that sends certain signals to the brain. Now, we we generally associate it with satiety. Um, It's like, I'm full. Yeah, put the fork down. Put the fork down. But what I'm starting to understand there's another dimension of it it's not just i'm full it's just i have enough Mm, enoughness enoughness and that's sending a signal to my brain that says i'm ready to bear children i've got (laughs) enough stored energy in the form of fat to take on this monumental task and of course from there then the body does what it does and 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 signals kind of through the HP axis and to the ovaries to begin to menstruate and, and, and you enter menarche. Is that a legitimate um, argument or understanding of what might be causing this phenomenon? I want to answer that in two ways. Hmm. So if I put on my hat and I'm at a cocktail party with you, I would say, Jeff, that is totally reasonable. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. If I put on my scientific hat, I would say all of that makes sense up to the point of leptin. And with leptin, it's one of those hormones that I feel like we're still in the learning to crawl phase. Mm -hmm. We're still really understanding the depth of what this hormone does. And I would need to look at the literature in terms of that signal that you're mentioning of there's enough, we're ready to start the menstrual cycle, we're ready to kick this off, we're ready to potentially get pregnant. So that's the piece that I'm less familiar with, but certainly that sequence makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. The way that I presented the initial question seems to indict the idea or suggest that the idea that girls getting their period at 10 and a half years is a bad thing. Is it a bad thing? It's a great question. So as you were describing the study that the Germans published, I was thinking back to my first menstrual period, Mm. which was at age 10. Mm. And I was a little overweight. I was kind of a pudgy kid. I had more fat than I think was healthy. And I, I can remember, Jeff, from the onset of my period in fifth grade, that I was in terrible pain with my period. Mm-hmm. And I would have this bleeding. There weren't other girls in my class that had their period. And so there's, I think there's a psychological aspect to, the, to this that's really difficult for young girls. Mm-hmm. 
when you think of, you know, the 16-year-old who's starting their period, they've already been immersed, hopefully, in the world of, you know, the transition to womanhood. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've even got a supply in their backpack of some pads that they could put on. They could just, you know, go off to the bathroom because someone told them about how to manage this when you feel this trickle of blood between your legs. I was utterly unprepared at age 10. So I think there's a psychological piece of preparation that earlier menarche um, makes one confront. And then from a biological perspective, I mean, you've got three daughters, I've got two daughters. And as you were talking about the 10-year-old menstruating, I was thinking about, yeah, my daughters at age 10 were still occasionally throwing tantrums. They were um, testing limits. They were doing a lot of individuation in terms of their psychological development. They were listening to Taylor Swift. You know, there were lots of things that they were doing. Is that the right age to potentially start getting pregnant? Hmm. I think that's open to debate. Yeah. Yeah, certainly those years between 10 and 16 are significant years for emotional maturation. Yes. So the secondary sexual characteristics that might develop or that do develop around um, moving into puberty, all of a sudden girls who are 10 and a half, 11, are being sexualized Yes. in a way that they might not be completely emotionally prepared for. And that's, of course, the society that we're living in. And you lop social media over the top of that and all this stuff. And you get a bit of a powder keg around, um, I would say, just emotional stability and mental stability. And I certainly, like you say, I have three girls. I've seen them. They all went through it a little bit differently. Um, But, you know, they certainly weren't having sex uh, when they were 10, nor do I think they were particularly emotionally ready to. So this is a this is a an interesting issue, and I think, I mean, you raised kids. I'm raising kids. Um, in terms of lifestyle and diet, I mean, we did and are doing our best, including, uh, you know, spinach and kale for breakfast. Heaven forbid. How do we get um, you know our children to adopt a, a healthier diet? And how did you do it? It's such a great question. You know, I I um I think about a couple of things here. I think about how when I started my period at 10 and I was that's when I really started practicing yoga regularly because I found that yoga helped me with painful periods. Mm. But I I think about just the stigma, the shame associated with getting my period so early. And I really didn't want my daughters to go through that. And so I wanted to do everything I could for their onset of puberty to be later than it was for me. Mm-hmm. And so I was determined from the moment that I was pregnant to um, eat a lot of healthy foods, to have a diverse, I mean, we didn't talk about microbiomes then because my daughters are 23 and 18, but you know, when they started eating solid food, when they transitioned from breastfeeding, and I breastfed them as long as possible, which I imagine might map to the date of menarche. In fact, I know it does because Mm. I saw some data. This is an important point. Quick little tangent. 
is that another change since 1860 is that in 1860, we didn't have formula. Yeah. So children were breastfed, hopefully as long as possible. And we know that that shapes the microbiome, the aggregate of all of the microbes in your gut in their DNA. It shapes the microbiome in a benevolent way. Yeah. Makes you less likely to develop immune dysfunction, helps you with your neurological development as well as your endocrine development. And so the the onset, you know, when formula started to become popular, it's it really changed the microbiome and it changed all these downstream consequences including the endocrine system. Hmm. It's really interesting. You're teasing something out here in real time. That's making my <laughs> brain turn around a little bit. Um, because as you say, the, the degradation of the gut or not building the gut with its full populace of flora um, as it should be, could contribute in addition to a poor diet and maybe over prescription of antibiotics or NSAIDs or PPIs or whatever it might take to chronic inflammation in the system that could lead or contribute to the insulin resistance, the theory of potentially more adiposity, more leptin, earlier, um, earlier menstrual cycle. So, you know, again, it's never like a, these things are multi-linear, um, but it's fascinating to uh, to tease these out. And it is fascinating. And you're, you're doing something really important, which is you're putting a, a functional medicine, precision medicine lens on this issue of early menarche. And I, I think that's critical. So yes, insulin is a primary driver. Overnutrition is the upstream driver of insulin resistance, but we've got to think of this larger control system so you've talked about the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, how that stress response system is involved in sex hormone production, like estrogen and progesterone and some of the other control hormones like follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, leptin, perhaps involved. So I think of it much more broadly in terms of the control system. I am a bioengineer after all. I think of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gonadal, so ovaries in women, testes in men, gut, mm. thyroid axis. And so we're speaking now to the role of the gut. So you asked me the simple question, okay, how did you feed your kids? How did you get them to like vegetables? How did you shape their microbiome in a way that, you know, parents maybe want to, so that you could try to prevent the stigma and suffering associated with early menarche? And so I still have an answer to that, but what we're talking about is how the gut we're learning is so intimately involved in hormone production and hormone processing. Mm -hmm. So if you just look at the role of estrogen as an example, you know, one of the two primary hormones of the menstrual cycle, your levels of estrogen are managed by so many different things. And in the gut, there's one enzyme in particular, beta-glucuronidase, BG for short, that determines whether you use estrogen in the body and then poop or pee it out, or 
you keep recirculating it because you've got three different bacteria that are producing beta-glucuronidase, mm. almost like bad karma, where the estrogen <laughs> just keeps going through your system, stimulating receptors, increasing your risk of breast cancer, maybe increasing your risk of early menarche. And the solution, you know, is relatively simple, which is more fiber. You know, I generally recommend about 35 grams of fiber per day. Don't increase all of a sudden to that, but do it slowly, build up. And then uh, there's a supplement called calcium glucuronidate that can help with reducing beta-glucuronidase. So just to circle back to the point that the gut is so critical here, and then let me just answer your question about vegetables, because this is such an important point. You know, I gave a lecture maybe 15 years ago on how do you prevent breast cancer? How do you reduce the risk of breast cancer? And what really surprised me in the study is that one of the strongest drivers is the amount of vegetables you had in adolescence. Hmm. And I saw that and I thought, oh, I am so screwed. <laughs> like maybe that's why I had my period at age 10. So I was determined with my daughters to really have them love, love vegetables, all different types of vegetables, some from my garden, some from the farmer's market. You know, they had pureed kale when they were eating solid food. Mm. They had all the colors of the rainbow. I try to get five in there. And I have one daughter who just has the most diverse palate. She loves vegetables. She orders them like crazy when we go out to dinner. And then I have another daughter who's like, eh, maybe, mm. you know, give me a panini and <laughs> um, with some chicken and mozzarella. And maybe I'll have a few mm. little spears of broccoli. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure that that was me. I think it was more them sort of meeting mm. me in the middle. Yeah. Well, I think the, the good news here is that we do have a degree of agency um, clearly over our own health, but as parents, um, you know, I, I always say, uh, they'll never listen to me, but they never fail to imitate me <laughs> for sure. Um, <laughs> and that's proven by the fact that, uh, anytime I say meditation, they roll their eyes and tell me to fuck off. Oh, and yeah. then I look on their phones and they have a meditation app. Isn't so, that beautiful? Isn't that a great thing? Like you're landing with them, Jeff. It's, it's a, a good, good thing. thing. I'll close the episode with maybe talking about the proudest moment I think I've ever had as a father, where my daughter, Micah, my youngest one, I picked her up from dance, and she um, said, as matter-of-factly as reporting the score of the Sixers game, she said, Dad, I got my period. <laughs> and I said, it took three daughters to get to the place where my daughter was absolutely, you know, unabashed, was like, Dad, I got my period. That is beautiful. It was a great moment for me. Because embedded <laughs> in that is that she had the knowledge, she had the, um, she was prepared for it. Mm -hmm. It was a non-event for her in some ways. And she shared it with you nonplussed and, you know, not not freaked out like I was when I was 10. So yeah. I love that story. Yeah. All right. Thanks for answering this question. And maybe we will go deep specifically on the menstrual cycle 101. I think that would be really informative for people. I'd love that. Thanks, Sarah.
Thanks a lot for listening to our new Ask Dr. G series. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you may have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So the best way to support us, if you're interested in doing so, is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top functional medicine doctors, authors, spiritual leaders, yoga teachers, mystics, sages. <laughs> and you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com and submit your questions for Dr. G at onecommune.com slash askdrg. That's onecommune.com slash A-S-K-D-R-G, Ask Dr. G. Okay, lastly, but not leastly, I'd like to thank all the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>